politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, in the 1930s, people doubted whether democracy would hold. There was a broad question about whether free societies could compete with the alleged efficiency of totalitarian nation. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I'm joined, as always, on this podcast by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And What Could Go Right is our weekly podcast where we talk to people who are animated by a spirit of how do we solve the problems we have rather than wallow in them? How do we deal with our dysfunctions rather than assume that we are stuck in them in perpetuity? And clearly one of the things that society is most dyspeptic about is political partisanship. Political divisions are nothing new, although I think our sense that there is no mid-ground has become increasingly acute. But some of that is based on a degree of historical myopia, failure to recognize that we've been here before, that we've muddled through, And as they say in finance, while past performance is no guarantee of future results, the fact that we have indeed been mired in intensely animosity-driven politics in the past should be some indication that we may not be as in bad a way as we think we are today. So today we're going to talk to John Avalon, who's a senior political analyst and fill-in anchor at CNN. Before that, he was editor-in-chief and managing director of The Daily Beast. And he's also the author of a book called Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. So we're going to turn to politics and culture and history. And I think, I think, I think we're going to have a really, really good conversation. Fingers crossed. Mr. Avalon, so good to have you here. Good to see you. Let's start in the past before we make our way to the present and speculate about the future. You and I have talked about this a lot over the years, and so I'm going to just posit the following, that, that, that people's negativity about the current state of American politics in particular is if you peel back some of the assumptions predicated on a belief that things used to be, that there used to be some sort of bipartisan mm-hmm. consensus where everybody obeyed Marcus of Queensberry rules and said, you know, you, sir, I may, and it was always men. So in this case, yeah. the sir makes sense. You, sir, I may disagree with, but you are a true American and I shall work with you even as I object to your inherent political beliefs. And they would nod, you know, genuflect genially in the direction. Yes, your obedient would... servant. Yes. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. So tell us, having written about 
a period of time where I think at least most Americans recognize things got pretty bad pretty quickly in the Civil War. Um, yeah, it's one way to say it. How, how things were compared to now, and if, in fact, this belief of, oh, my God, things have never been so bad is is based on a kind of a misread of how bad they have been. And well, well be. that, yeah, but that's a literal fundamental misread of America history. And that's one of the many reasons to read about the Civil War and its aftermath that definitively has been worse than, than it is today. You know, you don't get any worse than a civil war in which three quarters of a million Americans died. But it's also a, a, a warning, which is primarily the dangers of tribal politics. What I've spent a lot of my writing, both in, as journalist and, and in books, warning about which is the dangers of hyperpartisanship and polarization. But it does no good to catastrophize the present or to be pessimistic. In fact, I think that's a perfectly useless way to meet the challenges that, that we all inevitably face. There is no perfect past, this mythologizing of, you know, this, this idea that the past, you know, America and the recent past was better and simpler and more united. There are ways to, to, to measure, for example, congressional bipartisanship. And there was a period of broad unity from roughly the second world war through the early 1960s. But that was about a lot of different structural factors. In fact, there were liberal Republicans, conservative Democrats. There were a lot of searing experiences like the second world war that brought people together. You know, when people get overwhelmed by the challenge of the present, I lose a lot of patience um, because the future is always uncertain because it's unwritten. And the idea that you are going to think so highly of yourself that to say that you live in unprecedentedly terrible times, that's just being part of a doomsday call that does nothing to actually solve problems. It doesn't take any of the advantages of being alive into account. So, you know, buck up and deal with the difficulties we've got. They're serious, but they're in no way, shape or form worse than anything we've faced in the past. Okay, so how would you recommend, you know, bucking up and dealing with the the realities? Like I, for some reason, when I was preparing for this episode, I kept on thinking of like the Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme. And it's like, how do we put Humpty Dumpty back together again? And so well, I'm going to pose I, I, it like that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I would counter with the, you know, Le Le Leonard Cohen, everything's broken, but that's where the light gets in. I mean, I wonder whether... The whole, you know, you mentioned the 1950s and mm -hmm. sometimes it feels like there's this odd cultural, like, like 1945 is America's Thermidor year one, you know, the French revolution where just everybody reset history uh -huh. from now forward as if we created this marker of the greatest generation and people came back from the war and everybody had a college education because of the GI Bill and everybody had a home because of Levittown and suburbs and a car, you know, and, and, and look, the United States was 50% of global manufacturing in 1945 and an inordinate percentage of political coherence just because of the devastation that World War II had on the traditional centers in, in Europe and yeah. China and Asia. Like, like, it's not the right starting point for the conversation, and yet it seems mm -hmm. to inform the left and the right, right? I mean, I, we've talked about this on the show before, Em and I, the left mythologizes the 60s, the, the right mythologizes the 50s, and everybody mythologizes something that is no longer, no longer real and it wasn't even what we think it was then. Yeah, I mean, this, this is part of my impatience. You know, people, you know, you have whole political movements about taking America back to, to where it was, usually people rooted sometime in their childhood. And the world wasn't simpler then. You were. You know, trying to 
recreate some some idealized America reflects your own childhood, literally, literally childish perceptions of what the world was like when you were a kid. To the adults, then it was actually completely imbued with uncertainty and difficulty. And you're right. There was a you know, high watermark, 1946, I would mark it, 1947. We were making the world anew. The U.S. was was in pole position because we had cobbled together, you know, a, a winning coalition of allies, but the war had not been fought on our soil. But by the 1950s, there was broad dissatisfaction reflected in the beat generation. And and obviously, you know, there, there were whole areas where, you know, segregation, lack of fundamental civil rights, lack of, you know, fundamental ways that people would work together and, and enjoy the kind of striving for equality and liberty that we have achieved since. So idealizing the past is always wrong. I mean, there was 90% taxation in the 1950s. You know, one of the many reasons the conservative fascination with that time, I think, is fundamentally misplaced. So, although no but, one, but, although no one paid those rates, nobody paid, nobody paid those rates. But I mean, this is one of my, you know, you know, when I wrote wing nuts and out of reporting of the early days of the Tea Party movement in 2009 and 2010, it's a book about extremism in American politics out of reporting at that time, but looking at the, the, the echoes and the antecedents, right? So, you know, if you want to understand Glenn Beck at that time, you need to understand the John Birch society, you know, Obama's policies, you know, were. We're, we're, we're not that far off from Eisenhower's in, 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 in many respects. And that's where I think history becomes a really useful comp. I'm really passionate about applied history, but I think it, it's about applying it. It's useful wisdom that we can apply to the present. And one of the things that history teaches us is don't give up, don't catastrophize, think practically, you know, try to figure out the, the, the larger trends, figure out what's, what's really worked in the past to help us be our best selves and continue that process of forming a more perfect union. You know, the, the idea that we should somehow are entitled to a perfect present is totally ahistorical and nonsense. I mean, I think the the elephant in the room for a lot of people when they, they listen to a conversation like this about, you know, don't catastrophize is like, but Trump, you know, like Trump yeah. is the, you know, the big galactic warship coming to wreck democracy. And for some yeah. people, what I just said is overstated. And for some people, it's completely not right. Yeah, I mean... It, <laughs> What, we have what, what never do we do had him? anyone. We well, the, the future is is as yet unwritten. But I'll I'll so a couple, a couple of things. The Donald Trump is unlike anything we've dealt with at the level of the presidency before. We've had demagogues before in American history, but you know they've they've been governors or senators. Most, you know, Donald Trump is a classic demagogue. He's a professional divider, driven primarily by his own ego and. The, the thing that should be indelible is he tried to overturn an American election on the basis of a lie solely to stay into power. And yet, as we speak, he, he should be recognized as the front runner for the Republican nomination, which is insane from a, 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 a patriotic principles above party, party, you know, you know, country above party perspective. I mean, George H.W. Bush couldn't get a second look from the Republican Party, you know, in 1996. That wasn't on the menu just to use one example of a one-term president. Um, and this is the problem of, of, of our hyper-partisanship and polarization that I think is at the root of a lot of the rot we're dealing with right now. That is a really serious problem without any clear historical precedent. So I'm not minimizing that at all. And I think we all need to think differently about how to confront it, but we also need to think systemically and structurally, by which I, I literally mean rules of, of the game, you know, Two books ago, I wrote a book on on Washington's farewell address, George Washington's farewell address, and 
you know, he basically, his farewell address is this, is this, he's writing a letter to future generations of Americans warning about the forces that have destroyed democratic republics in the past. And the one he spends the most time is what we would call hyper-partisanship, what the founders would call faction. That's the number one thing that had destroyed democratic republics in the past. So when I, I get fired up about the fact that this is dangerous, this isn't just some playful narcotic or teamism in politics. This is gone. This is exactly what the founders warned about. And, and so that's an example of applying history and carrying it forward. But this is, you know, this is in, in terms of a president wielding the power of the presidency and the checks and balances that the founders set up breaking down because people were willing to, you know, in Congress, they were willing to put the interests of this one person over their own institutional loyalty as a balancing power. That's a very different problem. Uh, and while the founders did contemplate how do you deal with tyrants, how do you constrain power, that was a lot of their thinking, uh, they, they didn't quite anticipate this flavor. And so we should feel an enormous amount of urgency around that. Don't get me wrong. But we, we, we should also say, you know, for all our difficulties, this is not as bad a time as the founding era. It's not as bad a time as the Civil War. You know, in the 1930s, people doubted whether democracy would hold. That was part of the large conversation in the 1930s before our involvement in the Second World War. We weren't only dealing with the first America, first movement, isolationists. But, the, you know, there was a broad question about whether free societies could compete with the alleged efficiency of totalitarian nations. That was like the large, broad topic of conversation, you know, for over a decade. And then we belatedly found out that backs to the wall, free people can draw on strengths that totalitarian nations can't. And we shouldn't have to relearn those lessons. But we shouldn't also overestimate the strengths of our opponents either. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. With every ounce of heart and might and sweat and soul, we're going to keep 
making America great again. And then we will indeed keep America great. And that is why tonight I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. You said earlier quite eloquently, and certainly I agree with because I've tried to say some of the same things less eloquently that, you know, the future is future is unknown territory and therefore we shouldn't be so certain about its outcomes. But if Trump is the nominee, and which it would seem likely, but who knows, right? Things could mm -hmm. intercede. There's a long time between then and now. I am wondering, given your your perch as a card-carrying member of the current mainstream media. I am. I don't even think that's a thing you carry a card. For. There's no card. I get that. Yeah, yeah there's a metaphorical. <laughs> I, I'm a card-carrying um, center. That's not true. I, I've, I've, my my card has been. I don't know if I've renewed my current card. No, I think uh, you're you're in arrears. We were going to talk. About I, that. I think I'm in arrears, so I'll have to I'll have to take that up with the 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 appropriate <laughs> authorities. Yeah. Have one. Have we learned anything from the way that Trump was covered in that, I believe, honestly, there is a legitimate backlash in many parts of the country that basically held their nose and voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020. You know, they're given two choices. Now, from the perspective of people who think Trump is kind of the clear and present danger, there is no excuse to vote for him, right? That's, there's sort of an absolutism around that. But for the 70 plus million who voted for them, there clearly had to have been tens of millions of people who did so for all sorts of reasons that were basically mm -hmm. in spite of him, not because of him, mm -hmm. but who also felt like that viewpoint was completely, had no purchase, was completely dismissed. And then you add to the mix the degree to which Trump gets ratings. So I, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, what can one learn from what has been about how to do this again? From a coverage standpoint? Look, I, I think that's, that was a question that I think the, the media wrestled with in the wake of 2016 as well, right? I mean, what one, one thing I think you learned is, is how not to do balanced coverage is to put two people on. You have to insist on a fact-based debate, right? You can't have one person saying, here are facts, the other person spouting non-fact, and then say, you decide. That's not actually, you know, adding, uh, that, that, that may add heat, it doesn't add light. And, and the reason there's a deeper civic purpose to all this is, as Washington said, you know, enlightened opinion is necessary to a, a self-governing society. Enlightened shouldn't be taken with any sense of congratulation. It's simply fact. It's the, it's the, the Moynihan quote that I, you know, consider the key quote of our time, even though it was uttered decades ago, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own fact. And, and so, A, that, that's, that's essential. Uh, understanding why people voted for Donald Trump the first time in 2016 and, and then to some, to, to, to some extent in 2020, realizing that he lost the popular vote by nearly 3 million the first time, a, a relevant point, it, it seems to me. Yeah, everyone's got their reason. And, and, and some of them are predicated upon fear of the far left. I think the, 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 the left, the far left has a certain blind spot about why I mean, there, there, at any given point, there are twice as many self-identified conservatives in this country as self-identified liberals, right? The number of people who identify as very liberal is a fraction of the people who call themselves liberal. And they are 
And, and, and one of the things about asymmetric polarization is that, you know, the far left has cultural influence. The far right has very real and tangible political influence. They're different. But pumping up fears about the far left as a cultural irritant is enormously effective at galvanizing folks. Because a lot of times, folks on the far left seem utterly out of touch with what most Americans would regard as common sense reality. And that is a recipe for political backlash, even if it doesn't actually represent the, the actual policy beliefs of people at, at the top of the Democratic Party, the presidency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that requires a degree of humility, it requires a degree of empathy. That's one of the many things you can learn from Lincoln. And the ability to retain empathy in the middle of a civil war is one of the magisterial things about his reconciliation-oriented leadership. But, but you know, you also have to look at, for example, you know, I, I think the hollowing out of the middle class, middle class being squeezed for decades in this country has led to a hollowing out of the middle of our political spectrum as well. That hasn't given us as much ballot we had in the past. The Republican Party, you know, Rhino hunting its way into having very few moderate Republicans also means that party is more susceptible to being taken over by its more extreme wings, compounded by media fragmentation, the rise of hyperpartisan media, the rigged system of redistricting, which means that, you know, there are only, you know, 35, 40 genuinely competitive seats in Congress, which means that, you know, extremes are always going to have the edge in these closed partisan primaries. All those things conspire to electing a, a, a Donald Trump or having a Donald Trump-like figure get the nomination. And, and you see, you know, people who want to replace him playing to the base with policies that are probably unpopular in their state, but they think will give them an edge with the activist class. And, and the disproportionate influence of those special interests is what I think frustrates so many folks. But it's legitimately dangerous in terms of creating representative government. The larger stakes, I think, as you, you know, to, to draw a circle around the two topics you raised, is it, you know, one thing Biden's absolutely right about is that the defining struggle of our time is between democracies and autocracies. And one of the things autocracies try to do is delegitimize democracy by making people think there's not that much difference and it's dysfunctional and it doesn't get things done. And, and whenever we undercut our own democracy or dismiss it, or people sow doubts about its, its honesty or polarization means we can't address problems in a, in a proactive manner, that ends up feeding right into that larger geopolitical narrative that we absolutely positively have to stand up and push back against. John, can you tease out a little bit, I think, the tie or the tension or the confusion between empathy and tolerance, meaning that it seems to have been popular, you know, particularly in the Trump area, that like showing empathy to people that have a different political opinion to you is somehow uh, okaying their stance or like you're being tolerant in a in a bad way there was that you know tucker collarson being out of fox news right okay. was huge news not too long ago and one thing about some of the texts that were leaked there was the highly racist remark right which was gross like white white men don't fight like that okay nasty mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then the whole rest of his text was like weirdly empathetic right that it was yeah i'm actually fascinated that's that's very fair of you to put it in the larger context because it was actually interesting yeah it, because it, I, I think people didn't expect that from tucker carlson right like the whole rest of his text was like you know i saw this antifa guy and he shouldn't have been beat up like that and you know aren't we all human beings and it it seemed to me like maybe this is like the height of pollyannish or naivete to think like wow okay if if even tucker carlson we do have some hope for 
proper empathy returning to the American public and it actually being okay to express empathy towards people that don't think like us. Well, it's essential because, I mean, democracy depends upon, well, an assumption of goodwill among your fellow citizens, even if people you disagree with, right? I, I think that the problem with Tucker's sort of stealth check in the back half of that text or, or, or email was that it was at odds with what he did on air, as we saw was a pretty consistent theme with his text and email. And, and particularly if you're in the media and if you've got a perch like that, you know, prime time, number one prime time show. You are a hundred percent responsible with what you say when you have the microphone. And I'm not talking about the inevitable stumbles or, you know, live TV is full of people choosing, you know, an infelicitous word. No, I'm talking about the consistent themes you hit, especially if they are at the odds, at odds with what you actually believe. But ultimately what he was expressing is, is, you know, I started to feel myself falling in with the mob and that's bad for my soul and for society. And that's obviously right. You know, one of the things I think that true liberal values, not in a partisan sense, the impulse should always be to stand up against the mob and then to defend individual rights and to do so with a degree of empathy. The other point I think you make in the distinction between empathy and tolerance is our empathy has been strained and it's very difficult to do in a situation where people are being motivated by fear of different groups that is impervious to fact or bad faith, right? They know they're, they're lying. That's very, very difficult to deal with. And yet, if Lincoln was able to retain that degree of empathy in the middle of a civil war, we can at least try. But, you know, people are being fed an enormous amount of bad information. There's no question, and it's been widely reported, that there was widespread fraud and irregularities across this country. We never had the opportunity to have common sense uh, hearings on that or any evidence that that we could, you know, actually uh, see because uh, it was swept under the bus. Many of us were warning about the fact that the Democrats unilaterally fundamentally altered our voting system inside 90 days. We warned that the state of Nevada was just simply not ready to give us a fully fair and secure election. If I was a United States Senator on the day of the certification, I would have stood with Senator Cruz and Senator Scott and that small handful of senators who had the courage to stand up and say, wait, let's hold up on the certification of this election. You know, at this point, if anybody still thinks there's so, forget the 63 court federal judges that said the election wasn't, you know, stolen or tampered with in any way, the, the text messages and emails by the people pumping up this stuff on air, the audits paid for by these folks, including the Trump campaign that said there was no there there. If they still believe that, they, you know, they are, are have been willfully duped. By, by someone who has a vested interest in spreading that lie because his ego is more important than America or the Constitution or, you know, a fact-based reality. That's a really challenging situation. And I've looked a lot at, you know, culty programming is difficult to do 
or de-radicalization is more an accurate term. It's difficult to do at scale. It, it, it's, it's easier done one-on-one where, you know, the general path is you, you form a bond, you r- remind people, you get them out of that immediate feedback loop, you remind them of their alleged values, and then lead them to recognize the contradiction between their alleged values, because everyone needs to think they're good on some level, and what they're actually doing or what the people they're actually following. But that's hard to scale, you know, in, in a very, very real sense. But I think that's why ultimately this isn't a situation that's going to be solved for us by a single leader. It's going to take more people to step up as, as citizens, as lower level political leaders. We have the Republican Party has a unique responsibility right now, I, I think, to do that. Senators, governors, mayors, some people are stepping up and speaking out. But, but the stakes are much bigger than the future of the Republican Party, right? I mean, it, they're as big as they get for our democratic republic. So now is, you know, and, and, and people are, let's be honest, people, the power is fear and greed, which is the heart of all of this, much more powerful than we thought, you know, by fear. I mean, fear of Donald Trump, fear of the base, fear of being rebuked, fear of being cast out. If you speak truth to power and greed, because a lot of people, the partisan economy is math, how they make a living. And, and that's a deeply corrupting factor. They're afraid that if they speak out and tell the truth, they will burn their bridges and they will be functionally unemployable. But, but these are sort of biblical admonition. You know, don't let fear and greed make decisions for you. It never ends well. And, and that is, but that's what we're facing. It's not difficult to see how history will look at Donald Trump. I mean, the, you know, the question about hyper-partisanship is that it does go both ways. Now, one of the things that we look at in terms of the Civil War, it's a feedback because, loop. The, because the North won, is we treat the hyperpartisanship of the South defending slavery as morally wrong, and we treat the hyperpartisanship of the Republican Party determined to, at least in you know, 1860, to halt the spread of slavery. There was no actual determination in the mainstream Republican Party in 1862 to abolish slavery. By Lincoln's part, and there were right. leaders in the Republican Party who wanted to. Correct, but I mean, there wasn't. That was not the that was not the governing platform at the time. It was to halt the spread. It was Correct. not to abolish. That's right. So we treat that hyperpartisanship as legitimate and moral, and, and kind of on the quote unquote the right side of history, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm I'm grudgingly going along with you for the point of argument. Go on. It, I think that the the challenge today is again. I'm going to push you on this distinguishing people who vote for the Republican Party and for Trump, of which there are tens of millions, from fully endorsing the viewpoints of the people they're voting for, because in many of these places, there's not a lot of optionality, and there's not a lot of... The the partisanship of a policy has become significant, right? I mean, there are plenty of people who will vote for the Republican Party. I mean, look, even the fact that I'm talking about it this way, clearly, you know, we know what... We know where we line up politically, the three of us who will do so because they are deeply unsatisfied with immigration policy and in the, okay. the, that they perceive the Democrats of having done. You know, immigration has been a morass for decades. There was one brief moment under Obama that there was going to be a, you know, a grand bargain mm-hmm. about immigration that fell apart. Obviously, the country would have been better off. But, yeah, okay. So what do you, I mean, again, there's got to be a way of like, I, I, uh, it's like, it's like the art from the artist kind of thing. You know, there's like plenty of people who are terrible human beings whose art appreciate. I mean, I wrote a piece, I think, but, 
at one point in early 2020 saying, you know, if Trump says it, does that mean it's wrong? Right? Meaning there's, there, there's, there's plenty of things that are animating legitimate debate in this country, including mm-hmm. immigration, that lead people yeah. to vote certain it, ways. It, it, yeah. Okay. So there's a lot there, but let's, let's, let's break it down. First of all, I think it's really important to put things in, in perspective so that we don't fall into what, you know, my fellow centrists are often criticized of doing sort of a both sides, you know, you know, moral equivalence deal, which is exactly what I'm saying. In particular, we shouldn't do with democracy on, 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 on the world stage. One of the stats that I crunched a while ago that I like a lot is I think there, there were seven members of the current Democratic caucus in the House last session who supported the policy known as deep on the police, which is the world's dumb, single dumbest policy branding ever or most self-defeating. And what, 167 Republicans who voted to overturn the election after the attack on the Capitol, right? So I would, th- th- that's, that's useful, it seems to me, just statistically to ground that. Now, of course you're right. People can have honestly different policy differences and too often policy differences get demonized in our conversation. I happen to be a big believer that broken windows theory of, of you know, policing and as understood by James Q. Wilson, you know, and, and civic order is enormously important. And I think a lot of the decay in cities is what causes a lot of popular and populist frustration that I think is understandable and, and saying that, you know, no, broken windows theory is a good idea. Some people will be quick reflectively, you know, to you know, say, well, that's a racist policy. Well, it's not. And calling people racist when there's a policy disagreement is fundamentally not useful, it seems to me, and that hominem attack. American politics works best, works best when we debate different approaches to solving the same problem. Right. We have common problems in the country, urban and rural areas. There've always been cultural and political differences about the challenges they face, but okay. And, and, and let's debate that. Let's again, have a, a an, an honest debate about say immigration. So Ronald Reagan was the last person to sign a comprehensive immigration plan into place and it offered amnesty for existing undocumented workers, but not, but, but, but it didn't sufficiently stop the flow, which is a geopolitical problem as well as a U.S. border problem. Under Obama, as you say, I mean, there was a gang of 12 senators who knew that, that there was a comprehensive package that needed to be done to deal with this. You needed increased border security. You need E-Verify. You need a pathway to citizenship, you know, on and on and on. And you could tweak that, you know, you could tweak that about, you know, incentivizing assimilation in a way that we're perhaps not doing that I think is at the root of a lot of, you know, popular frustration. And contr- wanting to control your border is not a, a, a wacky idea. And indeed, you can go back and look at past Democratic presidents, Bill Clinton's, I think, 95 State of the Union, where he which sounds like a Republican today, quote unquote. But what happened is, is that Boehner wanted to do that, the, the immigration deal. And then Eric Cantor, his deputy, lost a primary. And they sent it, they, they blamed it on immigration. And the entire party got, got cowardly and ran the other way. And a lot of people would have an issue would rather demagogue issues than deal with them, even if everybody actually knows what needs to be done and could be done. And Biden himself has basically said, you know, I'm happy to be much tougher on border security with, with dollars if we can come up with something comprehensive, which is actually needed to solve the plan. So yeah, as long as we can have a fact-based debate, I think that policy empathy is a lot easier. I wrote a column Christmas, I think, you know, probably year two or one of the Trump presidency where I said, look, here are five issues where I agree with Donald Trump policies that he's put in place. They're relatively small targeted things, but I thought that was an important gesture, right? To, to make the exact point that I think you're, you're, you're making. Yes. They're 
very small in the grand scheme of who Donald Trump is. But now you've got a larger binary choice. You know, you can't say, I like low taxes because, you know, individual tax rates haven't been rated. Therefore, I'm going to reelect someone who tried to overturn an election on the basis of a lie. There's a limit to which that policy rationalization works, it seems to me, because the larger challenge to basic, really basic patriotic principles is so stark in the form of that person. I I agree with the presumption, except for the fact that 72, 3 million people did. I can't remember the exact account. 74? Was it 74? Okay. I like that. I, th- I want to be clear. That was before he tried to overturn an election on the basis of a lie, although he was telegraphing that he would do that. I mean, look, I, we'll see if he gets the nomination, but I do think we are. One of the things I think we have not adequately dealt with is, is how do you grapple with what seem to be completely opposed perspectives in a democracy, right? Abortion rights clearly is, is a huge issue in this because there's an absolutism about good example. women's rights. And to some degree, Donald Trump has become that. You know, it's a like it 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 there, there's it doesn't seem fully reconcilable to most people on either side of that. And so, I guess what I find to be our failing democratically is confronting what feels to be irreconcilable differences. And you're right to point to the yeah. Civil War as a moment where maybe there was no way to. To, to reconcile the morality of slavery, the immorality of slavery, the untenableness of slavery as both an economic and human system with an open democracy. And therefore, either that was going to be peacefully abolished, as it was in Britain and a lot, a lot of European countries, mm-hmm. or it was going to be forcefully abolished. One of the two, right? There was no, there was no, there was no pathway of, of half free, half slave. So maybe rice right. is one of those, but I don't, I well, don't know what to do But, but no, it, again, first of all, I mean, the problem of slavery was much bigger than anything we're dealing with today, right now. And remember, you know, the International Slave Trade was abolished in 1808 by agreement of the Founding Fathers. The notes in the articles, the notes of the Constitutional Convention come out in the 1840s, I believe. And people are able to see that the founders basically said, okay, we're not going to be able to get agreement past the Constitution. So we're not going to be able to deal with slavery. We recognize that it's a fundamental problem existentially for the nation if it contradicts all men are created equal, but we'll put it on a pathway towards extinction. So then after the Mexican-American War, when there's a structural shift and all of a sudden you have new slave states being added, that upsets the apple cart, right? That's a structural shift. And it was an alleged compromise at the time. And that's what elevates the issue and brings it to sort of a, a, a boil, so to speak. And the boil occurs when Southerners, Southern states, proactively succeed because they don't recognize the legitimacy of Abraham Lincoln's win. And you go back and read the first inaugural address and he said, look, I am not trying to abolish slavery. I might like that personally, but I don't think I have the constitutional right to do it. Our only disagreement is about whether it should be extended. We must not be enemies. We must be friends, right? Go back and read that whole speech. So it's the preemptive fear that he is going to try to end slavery because he's an abolitionist candidate of a new moderately progressive third party, in effect. That creates the, the, the proactive secession and rebellion of the South. So that's really important historical context in understanding how that came about. Uh, and then, of course, the war creates the context in which Lincoln can, from the first the Emancipation Proclamation and the passage of the 13th Amendment, to actually end slavery. And, 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 and Americans' attitudes change over time in large part 
to the, the example set by 180,000 black Union soldiers. So, you know, th- that's important because I think it takes it away from the only way to end it was through violent abolition of slavery. There were off ramps all along the way, but it was the people who were attributing false motivations and, and, and didn't recognize the legitimacy of that election that got us here. So if, if that framing is resonant, it should be. That's not to say there's a parallel. Also, you know, individual states don't have armed, you know, our, our armed militias in the same way that can be set against each other on conventional battlefields. But, but lost cause mythology is a really pernicious thing. Tribal politics is a really pernicious thing, particularly when you're dealing with something called that I read about in the book called aggressive defensiveness, right? Which is where people are sold with narcotic and said, we have to kill them before they kill us. Some variation of that thing. That's one of the really dangerous things. And that's sort of the great replacement theory, for example, feeds right into that. There are any number of, of reasonable, good Republicans who could run or, you know, a handful who are running, who've got deeply conservative beliefs. That's the, that's the ironic thing. And, you know, Donald Trump is not conservative by any ideological standard, only by a culture war standard. And those conservative alternatives would presumably answer those policy preferences uh, by, by people who, who have. And those policy preferences are totally legitimate, whether you agree with them or disagree. Of course, we can have d- debates on policy. That's what democracy is about. But you don't catastrophize losing an election. And, and, and yes, because of what Trump did after the last election, in particular, which validated all the worst fears and concerns about him from a follow the Constitution fitness for office standpoint, that, that I think puts him in a different category, it seems to me. But that doesn't delegitimize any of those those, those positions that, that people may have. And Democrats need to do a much better job, in my eyes, of reaching out to voters in rural areas and in red states. Both parties need to be competing. I like it when they're urban Republicans and, 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 and red state rural Democrats. I think that's healthy. But remember, you know, during the Trump years, the three most popular governors in the country by polling were blue state Republicans. You know, Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, Larry Hogan of Maryland, Bill Scott of Vermont. And in a, same, in a functioning political system, those would be the world's most obvious political nominees because they've shown an ability to have supermajority support in states controlled by the other party. And indeed, the, the residents, citizens of those states are saying, you know what, we need to check on the political culture here and have you know, not be all from one political party, which is itself a healthy recognition of that ballot. But none of those humans have a prayer of getting the Republican nomination. And that speaks to something that's broken structurally. And we, but we can, it can be fit. Right. Change the rules. You change the game. You know, you want to stop Donald Trump right now. You have, you know, more proportional allocation of delegates, not winner take all. Republican Party is trying to have, it currently does have more winner take all thing. That's it's a glide path for Donald Trump winning the renomination. You want to stop hyperpartisanship in Congress and polarization. You have more competitive district by ending the rig system of redistricting. You can have open primaries, ranked choice voting. There are structural things you can do to change the incentive structure. The incentive structures right now are really out of line. With, with our best traditions and the, the, the way that de- liberal democracies function best. And so that's why we need to be laser-like focused on that. Do you see any uh, spots or places in the U.S. where we are seeing movement on that front or at least focus? Well, no, no. I mean, I mean you know, in, in, in New York City, for example, we have ranked choice voting. In Maine, there's ranked choice voting, right? It, it creates a disincentive. Alaska just passed it. We'll see if it sticks in, in Nevada, but it creates an incentive in primaries, which, you know, ideally you want to, in franchise independent voters 
where you're trying to win over the supporters of your competitors. So you're not trying to destroy them. You're trying to appeal to them with, with reason. That's a good thing, right? For example, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing a red state, blue state dichotomy on, on, on redistricting. And, and, and again, you can't overstate the importance of people trying to rig it. Have unrepresentative elections because that's how they feel like they can come into power, right? So in New York and Maryland, Republicans successfully said these, these maps that Democrats are putting forward are, are two partisan. It's unfair. And, and Democratic judges in the case of New York overturned it and they put a, you know, special master map in place for the last election that may get adjusted this election. In Texas, you know, all the, the growth in congressional seats and population comes from primarily urban areas and voters of color, but they have fewer seats for, for, you know, African-American and, and Hispanic members of Congress that's being charged in the voting rights act. It's very unclear whether that will go forward. You know, Ron DeSantis pushed through his own plan to, to maximize the number of seats. You have states where the registration is roughly 50, 50, uh, in Ohio voters passed the constitutional amendment in 2017 by, by over 60% saying that we should have, you know, basically nonpartisan maps and contiguous maps and, and Republicans overrode it and then ran out the clock. So a state with actually close to 50-50 registration, well, you know, like to be really accurate, independence, so what's that, third or third and third, roughly. You know, it's, I think it's a 13-2 map. That, that's a real problem. We don't talk about that. So what, what could we talk about more that we're not talking about? I mean, is there like a place for good news on major networks? Do people, do, do people tune out? Is it, does it have to be? I mean, the joke used to be like, that local news would be, you know, fire, murder, death, weather, sports, and then like cats and trees, like the last, like, like the last minute, right? <laughs> and you don't even get the cats and trees on, yeah. on, you know, Fox, CNN, MSNBC. First of all, don't lump all those networks together. I think it does a disservice after the information. Well, meaning they are, they are, they're representative of where many people, and, and you don't, I mean, you, you still do on like, I don't know anyone who watches ABC, CBS, NBC News at night anymore. It's a different cohort. You still do get that last, you know, 90 second hit of, of the good news at times. Look, I think it's enormously important understanding that news is what's new and people don't cover trains that arrive on time and stations. And, you know, the, the, the line that, you know, news, most news organizations don't have a liberal or conservative bias as much as they have a, a, a conflict bias, which social media algorithms amplify to, to our collective detriment. I think there's an enormous need and thirst for good news to remind us that we're not as divided as to sometimes feel that we are. Most people are basically good. That's important. The thing I'm really evangelical about within the context of news, you just heard my uh, evangelical rant about the need for election reform. There are studies that show that people are exhausted by this fixation on problems exquisitely described without ever offering solutions to how to solve those problems. And I think if, if news organizations put more emphasis, yes, accountability journalism, but solutions journalism, not saying that we, any of us have all the answers, but here are some possible solutions. Here are people with ideas on how to solve problems. Elevate those solutions, have a conversation about how you solve problems. That's what democracy should be much more focused on. It's empowering, it's hopeful, and, and I've, I've been, you know, quietly, maybe not so quietly, try to advance that idea because I, I think it helps restore trust, but I think it's, it, it's incredibly important. And I think a lot of journalists are, are reluctant to talk about solutions because they feel it's overstepping bounds or they're uncomfortable, frankly, talking about politics. So you get forced race political coverage too much. We should be talking about solutions. 
I think that's enormously empowering and hopeful. And I think that's why a lot of folks are missing. And what, in, in the absence of that, I think folks tune out because it all feels overwhelming and despairing. And that means you're not playing an active enough role as a citizen of the Democratic Republic. I mean, what's your own personal um, strategy for not getting all overwhelmed and despairing? I mean, even just in the, you know, the conversation we just had now, I keep thinking, like, how does he keep all this stuff straight in his head? Number one. Number two, yeah, you know, I'm a puzzle. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, is that just like, is that just a personality trait of yours that you can look at all these things and say, but we're not going to give up? Or is that something that you've cultivated over time, you know, with intention? Oh, I, I think it's cultivation over time, but it's also about a, a, a reading of history that I think, you know, anyone would recognize or, or, or any, any, any narrative structure. Of course you don't give up. There's no points for giving up. But, but I, look, I, I am a determined optimist and it's probably partly my general perspective a lot of our greatest and most determined leaders you know they fluctuate between sunshine and shadow lincoln lincoln among them you know one of the things i love from my book is he would he would have seen his faith deepens in the presidency after the death of his son willie and he's seen occasionally going to a room and reading the book of job for comfort and emerging quote oddly cheerful <laughs> which is kind of extraordinary so I'd say there's a certain degree of cultivation from sort of a, you know, conscientious nihilism to a determined optimism, but there's a, unfortunately, op apocryphal link in quotes, one of my favorites, but it's unfortunately apocryphal, where he says, allegedly, I'm an optimist because I don't see the point in being anything else. That seems sort of fairly stable ground, it seems to me, you know. Get out of your own way. Don't wallow in, 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 in your own indecision. The future is always uncertain. It has always been uncertain. That's one reason to read history. It gives you courage and comfort, not least because we know how it turns out. Mm. But, but then look for the opportunities in our time. Look for the areas of need. Try to figure out what needs to be, to be strengthened. What are the big issues of your time? Don't, don't preoccupy yourself with small issues, except as they apply close to home. You know, children in your home and your community. And there's a lot to be optimistic about. You know, I, I would love to spend more time talking about the prospects of, for example, nuclear fusion or, or any of the extraordinary things that are happening in health and science and space exploration that could transform humanity. That is not to be Pollyannish at all about the challenges we face, whether they're domestically from, you know, a hyper-partisanship and, you know, election denialism and, and all that stuff, or the geopolitical challenge from authoritarian leaders that, you know, range from, China's surveillance state to, to you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Those are all real, but look at the galvanizing effect it had. You know, Putin wanted to, thought he could get away with, with, you know, dividing Ukraine at the very least through a brutal invasion that would be over quickly and that the will of the West would, would evaporate. And it was supposed to be a brushback pitch against the expansion of NATO. Well, look what he got in react, in return, an expansion of NATO. You know, the, the, the NATO alliance is stronger now because of that challenge. That's a good thing. But I think that's actually a metaphor for how we should all respond, it seems to me. Well, clearly we could continue the conversation and probably should at a later point, maybe in 2024, we can circle back and see how this conversation see ages. See how we're doing. Exactly. I like your sensibility, the historical framework, I think, is important to inform particularly the, the maelstrom of contemporary news, which can be consumed by the present as if the past doesn't exist and the future is unknown, which it is. 
So I think it's great that you are both at the heart of that and bring to it that sensibility. I mean, whether that makes its way explicitly into how you think about and talk about things, I think is vital and would be good if everyone had some of that. So keep doing what you're doing and we will keep talking about it. We will. And I really appreciate what you guys are doing here. I mean, focusing on, on, you know, the glass half full and the opportunities and not, you know, catastrophizing, you know, the inherent uncertainty of the future. That's really good. We're doing our best. Thank you. Thank you, John. Fun talk with you guys. I appreciate it. Cool. All right. Thank you so much. Be well. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm just going to echo what I said at the end, which is I do think having a degree of historical sensibility that you bring to to your view of the present is really vital. Not because I, I, I think the past repeats itself mantra is incorrect. Historians repeat each other more than the past repeats itself, but it does give us a an awareness of what humans have grappled with and a degree of offsetting this belief, which is, I think, pretty ubiquitous, that, that the moment that we're living in is unprecedented and unique. I mean, it is unique, right? Nothing really is the same. But the idea that human beings haven't grappled in the past with similar confusions and similar questions, whether that's new technologies. No one has grappled in the past with the rise of artificial intelligence, but people have grappled with new technologies. And and how have those been integrated or not integrated or resisted or created confusion? Our political moment is different. And as John talked about, there were things that have gone on during the Trump presidency that haven't really gone on at the center of American politics. But a lot of other things have gone on that are incredibly contentious and incredibly destructive. And how do we meet those? And I think that that gives one a degree of perspective. And if anything about the progress network that I've tried to do is, it's that take a step back and take a breath. And Emma, I mean, you've been all over that in terms of Buddhist practice, right? Take a moment, take a breath, take a step back. Don't become so consumed in the fear and the agitation and the hysteria of the moment because that clouds our ability to recognize what moment we're in and and grapple with it. Yeah, and you know, in terms of taking a step back, I like taking the literal step back through history. I think there is some confusion about low points, right? Like that there's an assumption that we're in the lowest point of American history when we're very clearly not. 
That being said, I'm sure people would respond to that as like, okay, well, if you're going to take the Civil War as the low point, like that's a really low standard. But <laughs> we, we are, have not devolved into, into Civil War, you know, M-dash yet is what some people would, would add to that. But as we we're talking, I kept thinking about also uh, just what standards we apply, right, to the present versus the past. There was this really interesting democracy index that came out. I can't remember when, but it was recently. And it rated mostly because of Trump the quality of United States democracy as lower than it was in the times that women didn't have the right to vote. And you're kind of just like, how, how, how could that be possible, right? That, that the U.S. is being graded now as a lower quality democracy is when not in the entire population, half of it, you know, half the gender didn't have the right to vote. So, you know, that, that, kind, of, that kind of perspective is crucial. That, that things may be bad and unique and uniquely bad, but they are not insurmountable and they are not the absolute worst. And the more people who, I guess, are able to toggle between the very real issues of the present and an awareness of where people have or have not been able to navigate and also you know, where, where their reactions to past problems have aggravated the situation rather than ameliorated it is also kind of vital. And we've tried to do that in a series of conversations. We're going to keep trying to do that in a series of conversations. Given that we have spent a lot of time talking about a kind of a political news, we're going to issue our usual news of the week for this one. And not that there isn't our usual stories of things that we haven't been paying attention to that should, which are all in our Weekly newsletter that Emma writes, What Could Go Right, which you can sign up for at theprogressnetwork.org or click on a link in Twitter or Facebook. It's free. It comes to you once a week. And it highlights a lot of things that are going on in the world that we may not have paid attention to or just may have missed in the, in the contemporary fray. So urging all of you to sign up for that if you're not already. And thank you all for your time today. And thank you, Emma for co-hosting as always and thank you zachary and yep we'll be back with the news next week what could go right is produced by andrew steven executive produced by jeff umbro and the plug conglomerate to find out more about what could go right the progress network or to join the what could go right newsletter visit theprogressnetwork.org Thanks for listening.